Good morning, everyone. Happy spring break. Uh, it's always an encouragement to me uh, to know when people hear and listen to things that I say on Sunday morning. <laughs> Even when it is to tell me when I make a mistake. So if you're keeping a list, make sure you've got plenty of paper. Because that will happen often, I'm sure. But last week I made a comment erroneously and I want to clarify something for you. It proves why I wasn't a math major like my wife and I'm a preacher. Because when we were talking about that connection between... Uh, Nehemiah and Daniel and Jeremiah. I spoke of the 400 and said 90 years between the completion of Jerusalem and the time of Christ's triumphal entry. Should have been 483. Uh, the reason is, if, uh, you don't in, if you include those seven weeks, the implication is there's no tribulation. So the kind man who spoke to me this morning said, do you believe in a tribulation? And that was his nice way of saying, you got your math all wrong. <laughs> So if that's at all confusing to you, then in four or five weeks, I can't remember, remember which one, but on our Sunday evening Foundations of Faith, we'll be talking about end times, and we'll unpack that, and I'll make sure I get my math right on Sunday night. So, One of the hobbies that I enjoy, I've mentioned this before, I don't have much time for it these days, but uh, I really enjoy woodworking. And one of the things that I enjoy about it is when I can do things uh, for our own home. Uh, anything from uh, a bed to a train table to a tree house. Uh, those are the kinds of things I enjoy building. But one of the significant limitations that I have when it comes to woodworking is I've got to have a plan. Um, I've got to know what I'm doing. Even if I have something in my mind, uh, I might see something in a magazine, I've got to draw it out and put measurements and kind of get an order of operation for how I'm going to build it. Because if I try to make it up as I go along, I will inevitably mess it up big time. So I've got to have a plan. Um, this podium is an example of that. Uh, somebody said to me this morning, we had some stuff uh, gifted to people over the weekend, and uh, thankfully they didn't take the podium. But one of the things that uh, uh, was true about this podium, when we were looking to replace the old one, which was basically falling apart, uh, we began to look online. We couldn't find exactly what we were looking for, and everything was way too expensive. So then we thought, well, we'll get... Uh, an expert like Larry or Bob, and maybe they can build one for us. Um, so we uh, got to thinking about that and thought, well, they'll need a, some kind of an idea of what we want to do. And so uh, I thought, well, I'll go on the, uh, a listserv, a woodworking listserv, and I'll just ask if anybody has any plans or ideas of uh, a podium for a church. And surprisingly, I actually got a response back, only one, and it was from an architect. And he says, well, tell me what you have in mind. So long story short, we talk about what we have in mind. Next thing I know, he sends me architectural drawings of this podium. And when I received those drawings, I thought, well, this is a plan. I can do this. And I'm sure Larry or Bob could have done a much better job, but it was kind of fun to build something for my church home, <laughs> just like I enjoy building something for my own home. Well, I tell you that story because I believe what we find with Nehemiah is that he is in a very similar place. He had a desire in his heart, but no real plan on how to do it. He knew that the walls of Jerusalem needed to be rebuilt, but that was no small task. Nehemiah needed a plan. And so we learned from our study so far that the first thing he did was that he went to God in prayer. He knew the truth of God's Word that says, unless a man builds Unless God builds a house, or in this case, a wall, 
than they who build labor in vain, right? And so after four months, the architect of all creation gave the plan that Nehemiah was asking for. And and unlike the plans I received, I think that God gave Nehemiah just enough to know what the next right thing to do was. That he would begin to take steps of faith, and as he went along, God would give him more and more of the plan. And Nehemiah took those steps of faith, trusting in God's covenant promises and in his loyal love, knowing that there was a much bigger plan in place. In fact, what we find in Scripture as we look at the book of Nehemiah is not an account of how Nehemiah successfully led the people to rebuild a wall. Instead, this is a story about how God divinely used a wall to rebuild a people. This is His plan among His people to accomplish His redeeming purpose in the world. And I promise you, God has always been more concerned about the hearts of His people than He is with any building project that might be in store. God has a plan. And His desire is to change our hearts so that He can rebuild our lives to fulfill the beauty and purpose of His design. And that's what we're going to look at together this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You so much for this church family. And I mean it in all seriousness uh, when I'm so grateful that they listen, that they know the truth of Your Word, and they make sure that what's being communicated is in alignment with those truths. And I pray, Father, that as we continue this morning, that we would even take that step further and make sure that what we are hearing is not only the truth of Your Word, but that our lives line up with that truth. That we are fulfilling what You've called us to as Your people. Help us to see that very clearly this morning as we go to Your Word again. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, when we last left Nehemiah, he had made that at least two-month journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. Uh, We learned that upon his uh, arrival, uh, it was very displeasing to some and probably very confusing to, to many others. He really gave no explanation as to why he was there. And there was really complete silence for a period of uh, three days. And then after that three days, that silence was broken when Nehemiah chose to speak publicly for the first time. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. Nehemiah breaks the silence and listen to what he now says in verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may, longer, may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Now, the first thing I want us to appreciate is who Nehemiah is talking to. It says in verse 17 that he said to them. Now, the them goes back to verse 16 where he describes 
who those people are. He says the Jews. That's basically the common people. The priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of those who were there. The them really includes everybody. And as you can imagine, after three days of silence, a lot of confusion of why this man of of great importance kind of comes in with a military entourage not saying anything, my suspicion is he's probably generated a pretty uh, high degree of interest, right? So that when he finally does decide to speak, he's got a really large crowd. The people have gathered to hear what he has to say. And did you notice the pronouns that he used in verse 17? Look at that again. He says, this is a bad situation that we are in. Come let us build so that we are no longer a reproach. Nehemiah identifies himself with the people that he's speaking to. And he doesn't try to to minimize the situation that they're in. He says, look, let's be honest. We're in a bad situation. This is not some minor issue that can be resolved with some simple answer. We need to rebuild the wall. And that's a big deal. Now, at this point, if I'm there among that audience that he's speaking to, I'm still a little bit confused and maybe not completely convinced. I mean, of course we need to rebuild the wall. In fact, these are the people who likely initiated that effort already. And you remember what happened. They had all those false accusations brought to them so that a decree was made by the king to stop all the work. And this military entourage came in and basically took over that part of the city. And so, you know they're thinking to themselves, of course we want to rebuild the wall. But does this guy understand what we've been through? There's some very strong opponents and a very powerful king who has said that this is not going to be possible. But knowing this reality, notice how Nehemiah points their attention to the only source of their hope. He shares the testimony of what God has done to make a way. Because I want you to notice, look again in verse 18. Nehemiah says next to nothing about the authority that was given to him by the king or or the masterful plan that he has in mind. What does he say? He says, the hand of my God has been favorable to me. And so listen closely to what He has done. In other words, we can do this because God has made a way. Nehemiah centers their hope. Not in his abilities or his authority. He put their hope where it belonged. In God alone. We see that in their response because their immediate reaction is what? Let us arise and build. The people were unified around the power and the promise of their God. And that's exactly where God wants them to be. Now look at what happens next in verse 19. But when Sanballat and the the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official... And Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? 
Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. No sooner do they get started than here comes the opponents to disrupt their work. Two of these names are familiar. We saw them earlier, I think back in verse 10. Sanballat and Tobiah. Those were the men who were displeased when Nehemiah first made an appearance. And now they've turned that displeasure into an open verbal rebuke. But they're also joined by somebody new. Uh, This guy, uh, Geshem, the Arab. We actually know about this guy from an historical perspective. He was a very powerful Arabian king. To put it into perspective, these were not just bullies from the local neighborhood. These were gang leaders, drug lords who could back up what they were saying. And did you notice their threat? They said in verse 19, what do you think you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now I hope based on what we've been through, those words should sound familiar. Are you rebelling against the king? Does that Does that ring a bell to you? Well, it should because in the accusations that stopped the work in the first place, those were exact words they used in that letter they wrote to the king. These people are rebuilding the wall because they intend to rebel against you as the king. They're basically saying to those people who have now been inspired to take up and build, they're saying, don't you guys remember what we did to you the first time? Do you think we're just going to sit here and watch you uh, start trying to build again without doing something about it? The opponents are reminding the Jews of their past failures in order to take away their future hope. And I want you to think about that. Because I bet every single person in this room has been in a similar place where you turn to God and you begin to to take steps of faith to get your life back on track. But what does the enemy immediately do? He brings up your past failures to rob you of your future hope. He he tries to turn your attention away from him and and to put it on your own inadequacies, times that you have failed and, and not done what you've intended to do. The very same tactic. Because our enemy is not very creative. He's good, but he's not creative. Our enemy's desire, like these opponents, is to rob God's people from the hope of God's redemptive work. He wants us to doubt God's ability to actually carry his promises through. And so look at what Nehemiah says to him in verse 20. So I answered, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Notice again that Nehemiah says absolutely nothing about who he is as the cupbearer, really second in command to the king. 
He says nothing about the orders he's been given and the authority that he comes to Jerusalem with. In fact, he doesn't try to argue or defend his case with the enemies at all. He simply tells his opponents the very same thing that he told the people. The God of heaven is the one who is in control. And our success is in his hands. And then he goes on to explain. Unless that God is the one you serve, then you have no part in the promises that he's made to his people. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. Here's an important lesson that we need to to take away from the scene, and it's very simple. Don't argue with the enemy. Don't argue. Don't try to convince them how wrong they are or how strong you can be. In fact, put no faith in your own abilities, your personal strategies, your strict self-discipline. The work of rebuilding and redeeming your life is a work of God. And so put your focus on His power and His promise and the plan that He has in place. See, our job is really no different than what we see happening in the life of these people in Nehemiah's day. To trust and obey. To put our hands to the good work of God. Setting our minds on things above and not on things of the earth so that the voice of truth speaks louder in our heart than any of the other voices that might surround us so nehemiah and the people are now unified in their faith they're undistracted by the lies of the enemy but there's work to be done so look at chapter three the beginning verse one Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brother, the priest, and and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall of the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Now the sons of Hassana built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars now we're not going to read every detail of chapter three because we're going to get lost in a lot of names most of which we can't pronounce that being said we're not going to skip over it and miss out on some very important truths that are hidden in these verses let me show you what i mean nehemiah began to work in jerusalem by establishing the unity of the people around their common faith in God. That was the first step. They had to get their focus right. And we just looked at that. They have rallied around the conviction that the God of heaven will give them success. And so they put their hands to that good work of God to to rebuild the wall. Uh, The wall around Jerusalem that Nehemiah built. And I want you to kind of see this because... What Nehemiah describes in chapter 3 is the work of some 45 groups of people, each working on a specific section of the wall. And if you were to read chapter 3, you would see him describing in a counterclockwise direction the work of all of those groups going on simultaneously in Jerusalem. 
the top part up here on the right, you probably can't read it, but there is uh, the sheep gate at the very top. And that's where the temple is located, towards that north side of Jerusalem. So as you go around, that's what Nehemiah is describing. Starting in verse 1, he begins with a, name by, a man by the name of Eliashib. Now this is an important man because he's the high priest. Okay? And he is being joined by his family members, other priests. And they are building the sheep gate. Now why is that important? What are the priests responsible for in Jerusalem? The sacrifices. Where are those sacrifices brought into the city? The sheep gate. So those men are working on an area of the wall of which is of particular interest to them. And as you work your way around the wall, you'll see the very same pattern happening over and over again. For example, look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Next to him, Uziel, the son of Pariah, of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. What Nehemiah is describing here is the western part of the wall. This would have been the part of the wall right next to the market center of the city. So what do you see there? You see the goldsmiths and the perfumers. Those are the merchants and businessmen of the city. They're working on that section of the wall that's of particular interest to them. Now look at verse 9. It says, next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, the official of the half of district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramah, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashabanah, made repairs. So here you have the description in the first part of those verses about some leaders and, and some officials. Maybe they're involved in the work because of Nehemiah's example, because nobody in that time would have been more powerful than Nehemiah. But he's in there getting his hands dirty, just like everybody else. Remember, he said, let us rebuild the wall. He's right in there doing the work with everybody else. And I believe that's why these leaders and officials are following his example. Did you notice the description in verse 10? Jediah is a man that we don't really know a whole lot about, but what we do know is that he's building on the section of the wall opposite his house. Now think about that. If the wall's primary function is to be a protection, a, a barrier between you and the enemy, how hard are you going to work on that section of the wall if it's opposite your house? Pretty hard, right? You're going to make sure that that is built well and strong. Because you have a vested interest for both you and your family. But the point is, these assignments are not accidents. There is a strategic, these are a strategic part of, of God's plan. Let me give you just a couple of more examples. Look down at verse 13. It says, Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars and a thousand cubits of the wall to the refuse gate. And Malchai, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Beth Hasharon, 
repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors, the doors with its bolts and bars. Then in verse 15, Shalom, the son of Kalaza, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and its bars, and the wall of the pool of Shalah at the king's garden, as far as the steps that descend from the city of David. Notice that the people who are working on this section of the wall, they're listed as being from certain cities, aren't they? Those cities are some 11, 8 miles away from Jerusalem. So this section of the wall is essentially being built by outsiders. We have no real indication as to why they might be involved other than the fact that they see a tremendous work of God taking place. I mean, just picture what's happening here. Forty-five groups of people surrounding each section of the wall, all building simultaneously. I mean, don't you think that would have been quite a sight to see? And so God is doing an amazing work among His people. And that kind of testimony is very attractive, even to outsiders who now want to be a part of that work. Let me give you one more. Look at verse 20. After him, Baruch, the son of Sabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Baruch must have been a pretty special guy. As far as I can tell, he's the only one listed that has a character trait associated with him. He zealously worked on that section of the wall, but you notice that this is his second section of the wall. He finished the one he was originally working on, and he's coming over to do another section of the wall as well. And Nehemiah notices that and makes a point to put it in his account. Now, I sure hope that you're getting a picture of what's happening here in Jerusalem. Keep in mind, three days ago, three days ago, this city was filled with people who had no hope. They were discouraged. They were not allowed to build. They had traveled, if you look at Ezra's account, some three to five months to get from Babylon to Jerusalem, and now they're really no better off than they were back in Babylon because the city's been taken over militarily. Three days ago, these people were in that condition. And now, that same city has come alive. Their hope has been restored. They've been united around a a common faith in God's promise. And He's leading them to build much more than just another wall. God is building a community as they are rebuilding that wall. The wall is not the most impressive work being done that day. What's more impressive is God's work in the hearts of God's people. I want to ask you, how many of you have ever been in a, uh, involved in a project where you had the sense that God was doing something bigger than that project you were working on at the time? I know I've been in that situation. When we went to Amiako and worked uh, on a camp there and helped build a house for one of the missionaries, I knew we were doing more than building a house during that time we were there. There was great fellowship and encouragement with those people that were there that, that needed somebody to come alongside them and say, 
we're glad you're doing what you're doing. And it's a great work of God. I saw the same thing in Wachochi when we helped build the house of the pastor who lived in that area, who is uh, ministering among a people that are very hard in their heart. And unlike the Bible Belt of America, they're not so inclined to listen to the things that God might have to say. So we were there not only building this house, we were seeing God work in his heart. But I've seen the same thing here in Lubbock, Texas. If you have been to the soup kitchen, you know that there's more going on than cooking food in that place. God is always at work and building in the hearts of his people. Even when we built that little silly pergola out there, the time that we had together to build something simple like that for our church family, we were building more than a pergola. We were building community. We were building our hearts Joining together to do God's work always builds bonds among God's people. Serving together always builds community. That's why it's so important. God definitely ordained the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall, but He designed the work very strategically so that it would knit the hearts of His people together in the process. And just as that happened then, it still happens today. Because that's how God works. There's always a plan in place. But let me make one more observation about this wall. And I think this one's important. It's my opinion that this wall meant more to these people than just a hedge of protection between them and their enemies. Let me remind you that there's a spiritual revival going on among God's people. Remember, when Ezra arrived... He found the remnant that was there, that first group who traveled to Babylon, that they had slipped into some very serious moral and spiritual decay. Oh, sure, they they continued to do some of the religious practices of the Jews, but they had made the decision to compromise their faith by accepting the pagan rituals of the, the nations that surrounded them. They may have affirmed their faith in God, but... Right alongside of that is their willingness to participate in the worship of idols that surrounded them. They were wrapped up in the ways of the world. But when Ezra began to teach God's word, they began to see the error of their ways. God's truth revealed the sin in their heart. And so they repented before the Lord and committed themselves to be a people set apart for God. For his holy purposes and plans. In fact, I want you to look at that with me. Look at Ezra chapter 10. Ezra is the book right before. So Ezra chapter 10 verse 10. This is a little snapshot of what's going on within the revival of God's people. Listen to what it says in verse 10. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. And have married foreign wives along, or, uh, wives adding to the guilt of Israel. Let me explain here that it's more than just marrying foreign wives. They were accepting and adopting all the rituals, the pagan worship that came along with that. So he says in verse 11, Now therefore make confession to the Lord God your, of your fathers and do his will. 
and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, That's right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. It is my opinion that this wall that they are building is not only a barrier from their enemies, it also represents their commitment to be separate and distinct as God's people. In a way, that outward expression of rebuilding the wall reflects an inward expression of their heart. No longer do they want to compromise their faith with the worship of idols. They are a a people of God, a holy nation. No longer do they want to compromise, but they want to be set apart for God's work. Now, as we finish up this morning, I want to uh, think about what this should look like today as we draw that correlation between what was happening with those people there in Jerusalem that day and how that relates to who we are as Melanie Park Church today. Here's what we have in common. The Israelites, um, we are like the Israelites in this way. We too are guilty of sin. Very often we too have allowed the influence of the world to dilute our devotion to Christ. Now, we may not bow down before graven images like they did, but I promise you, we have plenty of idols of our own. Money. Popularity. Sex. Drugs. Social media. Political agendas. Our children. Our careers. All these can be idols. Because anything, whether noble or vile, that is elevated to a passion greater than our love for God, that is an idol. Anytime we trust in people, or possessions, or positions, to do for us what only God can do, that's idolatry. It's like... Augustine once said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. We, like the Israelites, are broken people. We are in desperate need of God's redeeming grace. With the heart of Ezra, we too must allow God's word to reveal our sin. And Reveal to us the promises that God has made for people who are repentant before Him. We need to line up our life to the words of Scripture and then look to God for His plan of what He can do to rebuild and redeem our lives. See, the Israelites had the wall. But you and I, we have the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ sacrifice for our sins, is our only hope. We cannot build a wall big enough to separate us from the power of sin's control. Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. And actually, from a New Testament perspective, what Christ accomplished on the cross 
actually breaks down the dividing wall. That's what it tells us. Jesus, or the Jews had to be separated from the Gentiles. But the cross is what brought those peoples together. It's what allows us to proclaim what, what God said about who we are to be as a church. When he tells us that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. So that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, in Jerusalem, that wall protected the temple, the house of God's holy presence. But now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're that temple. God's holy presence through the Holy Spirit now resides in you. See, people don't need to come to the church to find God. The church needs to go to the people to reveal God because His presence resides in you. Remember, God only has one plan to change the world. And that plan includes you. He tells us that every single follower of Jesus Christ is a minister of reconciliation. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ so that we might implore others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We are God's people, set apart for God's purpose, according to His good and perfect plan. May God do the work in our hearts necessary for us to make a difference in the world for Christ. There's so much more going on in this story than rebuilding a wall. There's so much going on in this church than singing songs. There's a work of God in the hearts of God's people. And when we trust and obey, we are a part of His grand plan of redemption. And my prayer is that we would be like those in Nehemiah's day, knowing that we are called to put our hands to the good work of God, to speak of that redemption made known to the world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Go do the work of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of entering in to the truth of your word. To not be separated from some historical event and be impressed by all the things that happened and assume that that was something that God did in the past that no longer exists today. Instead, Father, help us see that what you were doing then, you were doing right now. What you were rebuilding in the hearts of your people then, you were restoring in the hearts of your people now. Help us to see and believe that when you are for us, then no one is against us. No one can overcome your purpose and plan in our lives. Protect us from the lies of the enemy that reminds us of our past failures because we all have them. And somehow be convinced that those failures take away our future hope because they do not. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So help us to put our hands to the good work of God. 
to serve together as God's people so that you may build within us community so that others may see those on the outside, the good work of God going on in the lives of Melanie Park Church and that they would be invited to hear the truth of your redeeming grace. As we, as ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ, go into the world carrying your presence within us and speak of those truths. May we be a people after your own heart. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.